head into the Ringerverse to stay up to date with all things superheroes and nerd culture entertainment. Hosted by a rotating lineup of superfans at the Ringer, including Mallory Rubin and Van Lathan, shows will provide instant reactions to blockbuster releases, insightful backstories on canon, and mind-bending theories, as well as fresh takes on the latest news and rumors. Check out the Ringerverse on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem. Sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts, real people who love this stuff, with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue checkmark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Welcome to Jam Session. I'm Juliette Littman. I'm Amanda Dobbins. Well, Christmas came early for us in the form of Ben Affleck <laughs> Q&A in the Wall Street Journal magazine, I believe. We're going to discuss that. Also, of course, we're selling the Adele beat. We got this big Jeremy Strong profile in the New Yorker that dropped on Sunday night, raising a lot of eyebrows about mm-hmm. the timing as it relates to the television show Succession. Mm-hmm. Um, but we just need to start with Ben Affleck. Uh, Amanda, recently yes. you mentioned that we hadn't gotten much Ben and JLo except for like some incredibly staged airplane photo, airport hangar photos a few weeks ago. And now here they are. They're back. Yes, they heard our call. Or someone on their team heard our call. I wasn't trying to concern troll. Here's the thing. I love this content. I just, I, and, I'm, and I love these people. And as long as they are happy and healthy and don't feel too overexposed, I'm fine with a steady stream of like very mediated, but still happy photographs and check-ins on their relationship. So after I said we hadn't seen them for a couple of weeks, and I guess they were working there were there were some Thanksgiving photos, and then Ben Affleck hit the press tour of sorts for the Tender Bar, which is he he has a supporting role in George Clooney's upcoming adaptation of the J.R. Moringer novel, not novel memoir, I should say. And if J.R. Moringer ring, rings a bell, it's because he's the person who is co co writing. Prince Harry's upcoming memoir. So just a lot of core interests all overlapping, right? Have Have you seen that movie, Amanda? The Tender Bar? I have not yet seen it. It's I'm looking forward to it. What's the buzz? I think the buzz is that perhaps 
maybe Ben Affleck could be in the awards conversation, but I think he'll probably be on the circuit. We'll get some Q and A's like this, some charming stuff. And then I, I don't think he'll actually be nominated for supporting actor. That's and, actually not what, not why I asked though. Oh, um, this is, this is just a brief diversion into Clooney yeah. land. This movie sure. is directed, directed by George Clooney. Right. The, one of the first loves of my life. Yes. And I just want to note, it's very upsetting to me that he's a bad director. I just right. need, I just need so, him to get a win. I need a W on the board. So for George I knew Clooney that's what you were asking. And I was trying to give the polite <laughs> answer by not speaking to George Clooney's direction at all. And just being like, well, Ben Affleck, another, you know, here's some positivity. I think that this, again, I haven't seen it. I think it's like one of the more like down the middle, George, the Clo- George Clooney directorial efforts. I, I don't think it's a disaster. Um, he's only again, had one good one and it was about 20, it was like 18 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> related not to his directing, but do you know that today, today is the 20th anniversary of Ocean's 11 I when sure our, do. when our lives changed forever? Oh um, my God. I'm just thinking about the final scene with Rusty and Julia Roberts. What's her character's name again? Tess. Tess. Uh, Tess. Tess. Yeah. Tess, Rusty and Danny in the car. It's like just probably one of the best hangs I could possibly imagine that trio. <laughs> I'm an anyway. old person, but it took me until just this moment to realize that the main character in two of my favorite movies of all time, Working Girl and Ocean's Eleven, are both named Tess. Tess. Anyway, I, th- I think the tender bar is probably fine. I'll let you know. I'm looking forward to seeing it when I can <sighs> see it. I'm thrilled that it's giving us at least some access, very specific, deliberate access to Ben Affleck because this is not a man who's just like this Sorry, is a man who- just, just pause it also Clooney went on Marin I actually didn't listen because I I love George so much sometimes I'm like I just need to like brace myself for it but my dad said it was good so we're also getting Clooney anyway carry on Amanda sorry I interrupted you <laughs> no, I was just gonna say both of these guys both Clooney and Affleck but um specifically Affleck are very deliberate about like the on the record interviews and yeah. press that they do Ben Affleck is clearly very available on the streets of Brentwood, but um, in terms of sitting and actually talking, he clearly gives a lot of, um, there's strategy or choice involved. So when you actually get him talking, it's rare. Both Clooney and Affleck have assumed the role of doting father in their interviews. That's like their sort of like post-50 persona that they've decided to hone in on, which is as safe as it can go. And I find slightly annoying because I'm, I'm like the interview version of using your children as props. But like at the same time, I love both of them so deeply that I'm like, all right, whatever you want. Sure. I don't know. It's just, <laughs> I thought it was weird in the wall street journal interview where they asked like, what do you see for your future? And Ben Affleck's like for the next nine years, I'll be a father. And then my kids go off to college. And I'm like, does he think it stops at 18? Like, is that, is that it? And I understand that's sort of like part of the I'm a dad interview response, but I like it was like taking it a little far, a little literal. Well, I I do think some of it is like for the next nine years, I'll be living in Brentwood near where my children go to school. And then after that, I can, you know, Miami, wherever is heart's desire. So it's some of some of it is just like basic planning, which as a dad, I think you got to do. I appreciate like the logistical realistic approach sure yeah sure um do you think like how many years do you think ben affleck and jayla will be together like is this do you think this is like for forever 
I, I don't because nothing this golden can last, you know, we're having a great time and he seems very happy. He is asked specifically about it. And I, Michael Haney, who is the interviewer, even does like follow up, really tries. And he very graciously gives no specifics whatsoever. Um, and it's like, I will be keeping this private except for all of the photographs that uh, you can see of me, but he doesn't say that, but obviously there are a lot of them. So I, but he does seem happy. The way that he evades the questions is in a rehearsed and gracious, and this seems to be going well sort of way. I just, maybe we've got another good year, you know, and then it's not really, I think it's probably sort of various commitments and things and we couldn't make the schedules work or whatever. I don't think it'll be acrimonious like last time. That's my hope. I just, we're all like, everyone's having a nice time and I want to keep that energy going as long as possible, but I don't <laughs> think we can keep that energy forever. You know, they've been together now since what, April, I think. I think so. Um, it feels so much longer because of like the pandemic, but also because like every day of Benefer V1 2.0 is just like such a gift mm-hmm. that I'm just like, oh my God, these days are long. The days of Benefer 2.0 are very long. Um, I just, it's an astounding, it's just an astounding time to be Ben Affleck. I think because I watched so many of his like weird YouTube interviews last year when he was doing like press, or I guess he was doing an Oscars push for um the movie where he's in the shower drinking a beer. The way, the way back. There's there's some other things going on in that movie, but yes. <laughs> well, that's the part that stuck out to me. Um, I like can just imagine like Ben Affleck gesticulating now when I read these interviews, and it mm-hmm. adds like a whole new dimension to it that's so wonderful. Um he it is also, I think, like assuming the role of dad works well for this press tour because the role he's playing is um a bartender who's like a father figure, but an uncle in, mm-hmm. in this movie. And so it also allows him to talk about his own father who, um, was an alcoholic and a bartender. And like, there's some pretty moving conversation about like when you eclipse your parents, um, like dreams. And he talks about like himself being a writer and whatnot. And I thought that was really moving. And also I was like, Ben Affleck's a writer and I kind of forgot that he Mm -hmm. and Matt Damon won an Oscar for writing and I was like oh right I forgot about that there's a very small almost certainly not going to have a chance that he and Matt Damon and Nicole Hollis Center could be nominated for adapted screenplay again this year for the movie The Last Duel I heard that was good no it is good I, I think it's available now on VOD if you aren't able to see it you should check it out I mean it's a movie starring Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck's a supporting role. So it's really starring <laughs> Matt Damon, Adam Driver, Jodie Comer, Ben Affleck's in there, written by Matt and Ben and Nicole Hollis-Center, who's just a tremendously talented writer and director, and directed by Ridley Scott. And no one saw it in theaters, so it's like it doesn't exist. But yeah, he's a writer. He has something written in the last couple of years that you can see right now. Um, so yeah, I recommend it. He's a very thoughtful guy. He's very he really charming. Is. The styling in this Wall Street oh Journal photo God. shoot, I just often they've they've leaned into sh- like chic dad. And he looks so it, hot. It's unbearable. It's really, it's a great <laughs> style for him. It's really working. I hope he and got the to keep sneakers. All of oh the clothes. God. I also noted the Veja sneakers. I this is it's very good. Congratulations to him. He looks so hot. Also, I, I did watch the video. I rarely do this, but there's like a two and a half minute video where like they just ask questions. It's you know, generic magazine sit down video, two and a half minutes worth it. 
Ben Affleck, what an incredible babe. I don't know. I just love him so much. It's like, God, it's just, it's just great. And I love sober Ben. It's really exciting. You know, he's clearly working through stuff and it's awesome to see. I mean, what else, what else can you do in this life, but work through it? it he speaks about it with a lot of clarity and generosity, I think. Um, and he talks about in the interview, how there are many other people in recovery who, for whatever reason, are you know, don't speak about it publicly or don't have to, but he's like, I went through it publicly. And so here's what I've learned. And, um, I, I really admire it. And I just also enjoy him on the press tour. I, I think this is a good rhythm for him to be associated with an awards contender ish every year. So we get about like three months, two to three months of him promoting stuff. And then he goes on his merry way and has like a great nine months living his own <laughs> life. And then he's back for two to three months of like insight and thoughtfulness. And then he goes away. I, I, I think it's the right level of exposure and I'm really enjoying it. He also does like another, you know, another part of his press tour bits, like approved by all is talking about Matt Damon. And mm-hmm. in the end, um, I, I, I just like imagine them like being like, yeah, you can share that. Like just, sort of like there's like pre predetermined bits about each other that they share. Cause I know that everyone cares about it, which I do. Um, and he's like, I like to think that I'm smarter than the Matt Damon in almost every way, except he figured out before me that you should choose a script based on the director. And he explains that's why he does tender bar as an opportunity to work with George Clooney. Um, and I thought that was interesting because Ben Affleck, like chops that up to like being smart in one way, but I consider that so much more like playing the game. And I, and I feel like, um, which is a, a form of smarts as well, but it's sort of like Ben Affleck spends a lot of time in this Q and a sort of like explaining how his dad was an intellectual and, and he doesn't put it in those words. But that was sort of like what he is explaining. And then it's sort of like Matt Damon had like this kind of savvy that Ben Affleck and his like, uh, you know, his own ideal trip through Hollywood lacked at first. And just sort of, I think explained some of Ben Affleck's missteps. Um, and I just thought that was like pretty interesting way of framing like how, like the mistakes he made early in his career to like make some movies that bombed. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it is a true lesson that is like one of the very wise things that Matt Damon did. And I, I mean, man, the two thousand two thousand five Ben Affleck run, there are just some not good movies in that mix. Uh, and it, I mean, it's it is a one of the most fascinating like counterfactuals, Matt and Ben in Hollywood. Um, but you're right that they don't usually pay each other compliments in that way. <laughs> They're always like, a, I mean, they do. And there's clearly a lot of affection between them. Um, in addition to the, um, awareness that people like the affection between them, but that he, he they don't normally, uh, they aren't usually as straightforward about how much they respect each other. So it was very charming. Sure was. Shall we move on? Yeah, I just wanted to say also one other Ben and and J-Lo related. This was mostly a Ben thing, but uh, I'm happy to see that Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez are still together and that they also, they took several of their children to see Paul Thomas Anderson's licorice pizza this weekend in Los Angeles. And the I'm basing that on the fact that they were photographed outside the one theater in Los Angeles that is showing Paul Thomas Anderson's licorice pizza. It's the only place in Los Angeles that you can see it and it's the only movie that they're showing there. And so I'm assuming they saw it. Would love to have everybody's reviews, you know? Totally. That theater's in Brentwood. Why did they do Westwood. that? Westwood. Sorry, right, Westwood. Why did they do that? Why did Paul Thomas Anderson only put it in this one movie theater? 
Well, it's a little bit because of it's, you know, the 70 millimeter or 35 millimeter. I'm not sure which one it's running on, but it's like some film nerd stuff. And and when you actually, I I did see the movie there and it is that very like grainy old school film that adds to the kind of seventies vibe that the movie is very much about. Um, And that kind of block on Westwood, if you did see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which has a lot in common with licorice pizza, that's where Margot Robbie goes. Yeah. It still has like, that old vintage like Hollywood feel. And, you know, there's like a very cute old timey ice cream store there that I almost stopped at when I went, but then the line was too long. So I think yeah, it's famous. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a, it's a vibe as much as anything else. Um, I think it's weird. You didn't play, pick a place in the Valley since it's a movie I've heard about the Valley. And also I assume it's 35 millimeter because I just finished episode two of get back in which mm-hmm. Paul McCartney is saying, well, we should have shot this on 35 millimeter. Right. So <laughs> Amanda, I haven't yes. told you, but I'm absolutely obsessed with get back. I think it's about so it. It's so good, right? I think about it all day. Okay. I, I, I watch it like in short sittings and like rewind mm-hmm. a lot so I can like really absorb everything from it. And I don't know like literally anything about the Beatles. And so I have like one friend who I've been texting and he like okay. gives me all this con all this context. And um I just I just like it's so amazing okay. and so astonishing. And I've made a list in my mind of the top maximalists of all time. Mm-hmm. Um I think it's a list of two. Okay. Number one's Michelangelo, he of the Sistine Chapel and the Statue yes. of David. Mm-hmm. I think those are probably the two greatest maximalist works ever, right? Mm-hmm. But I think Peter Jackson's number two. I think we got to give it to him. Between, I thought you were going to say Paul McCartney. I didn't no. see Peter Jackson coming, but that's the kind of zag from Juliette Littman <laughs> that I've come to love and expect. Continue. I mean, between the like 30 hours of Tolkien content that Peter sure. Jackson can give you and the eight hours of Beatles content that he's now provided, I, I just don't even know who else. I mean, I guess Ken Burns. I'll put him number three. That's my list. <laughs> okay. That's it, Amanda. Three. That's three, it. Those three are guys. Three. Okay. Um, I'm so glad you're enjoying it. I love it. I never want it to be over. And and that is sort of the appeal of it. At some point, it just does feel like you're getting to be a beetle. You know, you're yeah. getting to hang out and watch like amazing history happen. It's astonishing that all of this is caught on tape. Like, what it's are the so standout good. moments for you? Um. Well, there's a few things. First of all, it's very clear who's alive, and that's Paul McCartney because he's in so much of it. Like, it's so clear. I also understand that John was probably strung out for part of this and therefore talking less and therefore less material, especially less audio material. So, okay, I get it. Um, The standout moments for me are... Obviously, there's the flower pot conversation, but without the like real visual, I'm sort of I understand that's like really meaningful for like diehard Beatles fans. But for me, it's less so. Um, I would say I would say the standout moments are when at the end, the towards the end of season two, when like Paul doesn't want to commit to a performance because like nothing will be perfect. Mm-hmm. John's like, if Paul doesn't like it, well, then, you know, he doesn't like it or whatever. So there's that. Um there's also uh, in episode one when Paul is instructing George how to play and George is yeah. really pissed. But yeah. I would say my number one moment from from part one is when George is just like rhapsodizing about jazz and he's like how much he loves it. 
Mm-hmm. And Paul and John have like literally no interest. They're just like, shut the <laughs> fuck up. They're yeah. just like, they, they don't even respond. It's insane. Yeah. The clothes are incredible. I'm really torn between my heart loving John Lennon and fur and me wanting to like, just be standing next to Paul McCartney and all of his top coats, like just mm-hmm. incredible. Mm-hmm. And, um, I just like love the London of it all. I just love how they just like walk into the studio alone. I just like, I don't know, man. It's so fucking good. I love it. It really, it's wild. Are you more of a a John person than a Paul person? Definitely not. I fucking love Paul McCartney. I was going to say like everything that you said, and I think it is like revelatory about all of them, but I I couldn't tell. And that was going to be a real shock to me. That was going to be even like, putting sleepless in Seattle over you've got mail shock to me. I would say Paul McCartney. This is going to be like offensive to like anyone who's ever liked music and culture, but I would say Paul McCartney falls into the Brandon Walsh category of just like really hot, smart asshole. Like, yes. So, (laughs) um, there we go. The Brandon Walsh. That's the comparison I was looking for. (laughs) I too am a diehard. I'm a Paul fan, but I mean, you know, the, John is also a genius. And to me, the really moving parts of this documentary are when they do lock in, you know, like yeah. when they're Oh my God, it's so beautiful. When two of us together. Yeah. And that's so beautiful. And then George is at the corner fuming. <laughs> I find it like almost like I, I'm obsessed with it. But like, even as we're talking about it, like I feel like I'm like tearing up. Like I find this so tragic. I find mm-hmm. friend breakups way sadder than romantic breakups. Um, yeah. And I find like, the the like the ecstasy of their collaboration and then knowing about the acrimony between them like so deeply sad that like I almost like it's almost like too much for me but I'm like addicted to the the highs and the lows of McCartney and Lennon well and I think that's one of the real strengths of the documentary is that it in that eight hours it shows you a lot of that and it shows you the love and the collaboration and then um, all of the the tensions, some of which are really petty and some of which are like old wounds, as they say in that flower pot conversation. And some of it is logistical and some of it is just that they're all kind of reaching a different phase of their lives. You know, like Yoko is obviously in the studio reading her newspaper a lot, but like Linda shows up and, and Ringo's wife Love shows Linda. up and yeah. Lin- I, I, and, and they're just kind of, they're transitioning from the original, you know, early Beatles to the next phase of their life. And that happens in friendships and it can be painful and it can be normal and it can, and then the money of it all, which is like the, the Alan Klein. I don't know if you've gotten to the, the Alan Klein. I have not. Looming. He never really shows up, but, um, it's the person that John is really excited about meeting with. Right. And they, they need to replace Brian Epstein. Right. Yes. Um, and then there was some division about him and all of like the business arrangements, which is a theme throughout the the documentary because they just like can't even afford decent recording equipment. Um, I'm just like, you're the Beatles. You deserve like more than two bases, but whatever. So it's all the different things that yeah. lead to the breakup. Um, I also find the way that, that like, first of all, they all read the newspaper and like read it aloud and voices yeah. to each other. So amazing. It's like scrolling Twitter now. And they read all of their press coverage, which I yeah. find fascinating. And they're like mad about it and also making fun of it. But they're very conscious of their own like Images. image making, which yeah. is fascinating. Totally. Um, so I, I love 
I love that. I also um, love how much they talk about the Beatles, like as a concept and as a band. And like, it's just, it's so deliberate. I, you know, we talk about this so much on our pod, particularly as it relates to, you know, female pop stars, but I, you know, we both love to see the seams and love to see the work. And Mm -hmm. it's so cool to see that in terms of both the music and the celebrity. Um, And it's just like so overwhelming this exists. It's so cool. I love it. I completely agree. I just can't believe that it exists. It's fascinating. Yeah. I also like, I, I find myself wanting to know what all of, all of my favorite musicians think about this. Like Mm -hmm. I'm like, and, and, you know, I just wish that like everyone, like uh, my dream podcast companion to this is like just monologues from like band leaders or like people who like were co-leader and like what they think about this. And, um, yeah, that's just, it's so, so good. I fucking love the clothes. Oh my God. It's just amazing. I, I would like George Harrison's wardrobe. Um, not so much the boots. A lot of people have been focusing on the boots, but the coat and the hat that he mm-hmm. wears entering the studio. Um, I feel very strongly about those. I really like Paul's orange uh, jumper that he wears. Jumper. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's nice. And it shows up like every couple of yeah, every couple of days. It's weird when you just see someone be a genius and he's a genius. Yeah, it's true. I don't know. It's so great. And it's just like, I don't know, every, everything about it's really, really wonderful. I'm so glad and that you are enjoying it. It's like, I can't believe how much I love it because I literally, I had no feelings or thoughts about the Beatles. Like I very infrequently thought about them. Okay. Um, even though as a kid... And actually, I think this is tomorrow. Um, when I was in high school, my high school friends and I always used to go to Strawberry Fields for like the vigil for John Lennon on the anniversary of his death because it was like very close to where I grew up. Um, so that's tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if that's related. Also, like, I'm just like dying to know what notes Yoko Ono gave. Like, you know, she's got a producer credit. Like, I just like, what was her conversation like with Paul and Ringo and Olivia Harrison? Like, what did they talk about? I don't know. She's got so many cues. Same. I, I mean, I feel like we're in the can you believe this exists phase of this content, but I do think we might not get the exact podcast that you mentioned, but this is sort of like an instant classic and we will yeah. be hearing like a lot more about it for many weeks and months and probably years to come. Totally. Totally. It's just great. We weren't planning to talk about this, but here we are. I'm just so glad you liked it. I love it. I have one more to go. I'm really trying to like space it out as much yeah. as I can. I w- when it was over, I was sad because I was like, I miss my friends. Yeah. Uh, maybe I should go hang out again. I, I mean, I definitely could see this being like a big rewatch and like just like kind of like background noise. And I'm sure you would pick up new stuff every time. Right. Um, It's pretty awesome. I don't know. I love it. This episode is brought to you by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem. Sneakers and streetwear are so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts, real people who love this stuff, with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue checkmark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of reels always in reach. 
Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Uh, anyway, next. Uh, the New Yorker dropped profile of Jeremy Strong, who plays or played Kendall Roy on Succession. Um, it dropped on Sunday evening, moments before episode eight of season three aired on HBO and HBO Max. And, you know, I think many people were aware that that Jeremy Strong, sorry. Yeah, Jeremy Strong. I, I always confuse it with Jesse Armstrong, who is the writer and creator, um, that knew that Jeremy Strong was a method actor. But I think this profile really revealed the extent to which he immerses himself in his various characters. And my main takeaway is that I would never like to hang out with Jeremy Ar- Jeremy Strong. Did you almost say Jeremy Irons there? No, you almost said Jeremy Armstrong, like Jesse okay. Armstrong. I thought you almost said Jeremy Irons, and I just, for the record, would love to hang out with Jeremy Irons. Me too. I love Die Hard 3, so of course. <laughs> okay. This profile was fascinating to me because I, this is kind of like the most the biggest deal celebrity profile that we've had in some time. I can't remember a celebrity profile having this much impact, both in just people reading it and having a lot of thoughts about it. And that's obviously like, you know, within the niche world of people who are invested in succession, which is every single person that I know, but you know, not as many people as watch the bachelor or red notice or whatever. (laughs) Or Yellowstone. Um, Yes. Or Yellowstone. But a a lot of people and it was like revelatory and the profile then also played a major role in people opining about the television show and specifically what happened on the television show, which I'm just going to chalk up to savvy web editors at the New Yorker who Mm. understood, who probably had screeners and understood that there would be discussion about this character this week. And so they put the profile out, even though the profile does not speak in a specific way to what happened in episode eight of season three of succession. Um, but I, I don't remember people geeking out this much about the good old celebrity profile in a while. And, and that was really satisfying. Even as if I agree with you, it is not, it's not a hang I, I would look to either. 
even though many celebrities apparently do. Here are some of the people on record in this profile. Robert Downey Jr., uh, who went on a vacation with Jeremy Strong. Their families went on a vacation together recently, which is, to me, the single most incredible detail in this profile. Chris Evans, on the record. Michelle Williams, on record. Who am I forgetting? Uh, Dustin Hoffman? Is he? Mm. No, that was Robert Downey Jr. who said that he okay. was so annoying on set that it was like he had to tell him to go away. Right. <laughs> Matthew McConaughey. Oh, right. Matthew McConaughey. Just wild stuff. I think that this profile speaks a lot to the type of celebrity and the type of journalist who really care about theater. Michael Shulman, who went to my summer camp, Camp Paul Whitman, I think was it's a pretty big theater writer or like his beat is usually like theater for The New Yorker. And Jeremy Strong reminds me like very much of like, you know, the type of the type of act, and and this is why a lot of actors end up like leaving TV. And Billy Crudup talked about this with Bill actually. Um, they like just want to be able to do theater and like be on stage and like commune with an audience and live in a character and and whatnot. And this just felt like so. Um, this felt like the best 2010s version. Sorry, what year are we in? 2020s. 20- <laughs> yeah, we're in the 2020s now. I hate to break it to you. The, the best, the best 2020s version of like. 1989 profile of like someone who just like is hanging out with their friends is like, you know, jet setting and is like really intense actor. Um, like it, it like reminded me of like a story that like Harry and Sally could have read and then discussed yeah. dinner with Jess and Marie. I mean, in the touchstones, there is a lead about Dustin Hoffman, which is why you remembered him. There is a story about getting Al Pacino to visit his Yale drama club and then bankrupting the drama club in the process. There's an extended section about um, when Jeremy Strong worked as an assistant to Daniel Day-Lewis. So these are retro references. He is aspiring to a generation older than us and, and of a different time and certainly of a different way of interacting with probably both acting, but certainly celebrity, right? Like we have different ideas of those guys in our head than we do say of Chris Evans, who is just like this, the the shiny puppy dog in this profile and talks about how much he loves Jeremy Strong and how he set Jeremy Strong up with his CAA agent, like very brightly and suddenly as if that all worked out. And of course the CAA agent was like, I don't care about Jeremy Strong. I only want Chris (laughs) Evans. Beautiful stuff. Never, never change Chris Evans. Um, but yeah, it's a little retro. My favorite anecdote personally was that everyone involved in the succession doesn't think it's funny. Like Jesse Armstrong, no. Jesse Armstrong and Jeremy Strong were like, you think this is funny? Like Chekhov? And they're like, no, it's just funny, which is, yeah, which can't be true. I mean, Tom and Greg alone are so fucking funny, but, uh, all this season I have not found particularly funny. There's some good bits, but, um, I don't know. I, uh, I'm not actually like in in the thrall of succession and its cast the way that like most of our cohort is. I like it, but I have found this season, like I know there's like a lot of like Rorschach test conversation mm-hmm. around succession, but like in general, I don't find this season particularly fun. And so I'm not sort of like in the like obsessed camp, but obviously I watch it like at 9.04 every sure. Sunday. So I don't find it fun. I... I'm very much enjoying this season because I think it's like the pure nihilism shining through. This is a story about how all of these people are truly terrible 
and miserable. And, and, and miserable, but you know, I, I, there is a lot of conversation about like, I don't really root for anybody. I don't share a lot of empathy with any of these people. And that makes me not want to watch it, which I totally understand. It's sometimes like kind of bummer town to watch, even though it's very smart. I don't empathize with them at all. I'm just like, oh, you are all pretty terrible people. I and think- I, like, I like that the show is leaning into that. The need to empathize with characters is not something I understand. But I say that as someone who watches a lot of reality TV. And reality TV is, like, actually about the opposite of empathy. It's about ridiculing and mocking people. And so, like, not most, but, like, many, many, many people do not watch television to empathize with characters. And so I think that's, like, a funny critique that's, like, sort of, um, I don't know. I I don't, it sort of doesn't resonate for me. I I agree. And it it certainly doesn't resonate for me in this. What I what I really like about this season is the extent to which it's just absolutely brutal to all of these characters. Like none of them have it. And I thought one revealing part of the profile that is not set out right, but it's sort of suggested it's like at some point it does seem like the succession writers started using parts of Jeremy Strong's personality and in Kendall itself. And that kind of disconnect between uh, imagine sense of self and what other people see is like certainly in Kendall's character and often like excruciating, but I think true ways. But I do think people watch TV at some point. It's like, do you want to spend time with this person yeah. or not? Yeah. Um, and you can have a lot of different reasons for wanting to spend time with people or not. But I think sometimes people are using, there's no one I can empathize with as fancy words for being like, I don't really like this. I don't want to spend 10 more hours or whatever around these people. And, and I get that. I disagree on this. I I think it's like an incredible deconstruction of uh, terrible people who have an undue amount of power in this world. But I get if people are like, "Mm, this is like not, it's not fun. You know, like no one's killing a dragon and like soaring to victory at the end of these episodes. (laughs) I get it. It's funny. It's sort of like the podcastification of television where like podcasts about like spending time with people you don't know, but you mm-hmm. would like to spend time with. And it's sort of like, that's like a weird expectation for TV. I kind of get it more with books. Like I don't like really sad books. Like I really did not like a little life. And I really don't like a lot of the like sort of Scandinavian sadness that mm-hmm. is popular in literary fiction. Um, But for television, I just don't feel that way, but I don't know. I guess everyone but I, I sort of feel like traditionally, you know, the TV that you and I were raised on, like everything from Nano to an O to friends to, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. it was people that you had in your home for 30 minutes or an hour every, uh, sure. every week. And it, it was like a very different, there is a different experience, right? Between these, these people that you want to spend time with. I think it's like the same way that the, you know, the office is like, or the friends were the most streamed shows ever because sure. people can just like set it and forget it podcast wise you know, TV wise, just like they do podcasts, which I get. So I, I understand the impulse. And I think that's like often what is percolating under people's dissatisfaction with characters or being yeah. like, I just, I don't empathize. I'm not rooting for this person because it's a lot to ask. Yeah. It's funny. It's funny you say that though. Cause, um, my favorite shows are by and large procedurals or like teen romance essentially. Mm-hmm. And per- with procedurals case of the week, like the characters actually don't really matter that much. And like case in point, my like most soothing television shows called the midwife. And like, I actually don't even 
know like what year I'm in. Like it's just, it's about, it really, it's about the, the case of the week or whatever. And right. so I do, I do think there's actually like two different kinds of ways of, of watching. One is like to be with characters you love, like, and mm-hmm. also that usually very romance driven or because like the conceit of like a different world it, or like a similar, but different world or whatever is appealing to you. And it's, and I think it also gets back to like what people see in succession. Like, is this about, you know, being disgusted by the rich people? Is it about the like Chekhovian comedy? Is it about, you know, the like the glitz and the glam? It it definitely does speak to, and it's one of the reasons the show is so good is there's so much to like and to be invested in. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. It's, but, it's, it's interesting conversation. But it is funny, even your reaction of like Jeremy Strong is not a person that I would want to spend time with. Uh same. I just <laughs> I as you know, my relationship to theater is very different from yours and um, I, I'm not as earnest as he is, which he, he does seem, uh, very sincere in some of his beliefs or at least self-conception of sincerity. Um, and I think a lot of people kind of had that reaction and then we're going to transplant it onto the character. But I think this is everything that we just described is what makes his performances Kendall amazing. It's incredible. It's one of the most like it's again, I would not want to hang it's out with astounding. Kendall either, but it's an astounding performance. So it's I would funny. definitely rather hang out with Kendall than Jeremy. There's no question in my mind. Really? Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I think I, I basically, my skin is crawling every time Kendall is on the screen. And I mean that as a compliment, like, cause I think <laughs> that's supposed to be what's happening, but it is Kendall's my top t- choice for hang from the cast, like hands down. There's no, there's definitely my, I mean, it, Adrian Brody, number one, but number two is Kendall. Um, I think Adrian Brody, and then I'm going straight to Logan, honestly. <laughs> so who is a monster, but is at least upfront about being a monster. You know, you don't have to deal with all of the insecurities of the other people, but anyway, check out the profile in the New Yorker and the show. Good show. Good show. Very, very, very good show. Also, I uh, I was just like doing a deep dive on on uh, Jesse Armstrong, who is the executive producer, and I was obsessed with this television show called Fresh Meat, like ten years ago. It starred Jack Whitehall. I started watching it because Joe Thomas from The Inbetweeners was in it. This actress named Charlotte Ritchie, who was then went to be on called The Midwife, was on it, and like I loved it. Like it was my first experience, like looking for an illegal stream via Reddit, and I just found out that Jesse Armstrong wrote and created that show, and I had no idea. And he wrote my second favorite episode of Black Mirror, which is um, Entire History of You. I, I like actually didn't know that his work was so foundational in my TV life. But Jer- Jesse Armstrong, love your work, man. <laughs> That's all. There we go. <laughs> all right. Last topic of the day. We both watched um, Adele uh, on the Nikki Tutorial YouTube channel. And I sound 1,000 years old saying that. I did feel 1,000 years old when you shared the link. And I was like, ooh, interesting YouTube content. It's 30 minutes of Adele doing uh, Nikki Tutorial series Power of Makeup, where she does makeup on just one half of your face. Um, I was like, wow, Adele's a genius. How smart for doing this. I now know that several celebrities have done this. But it is sort of like the woman celebrity uh, hot ones. It's like where you like stop by to sort of like gab with a host that you find interesting. And then it goes on YouTube and man, did I love it? I will say I am not interested in watching like anyone I don't like do this, but, um, it was great. And also Adele, she, she revealed some cool stuff about her personal life that she hasn't said in any other interview. Like she watches, 
YouTube tutorials to learn how to dye her own eyebrows. That was a revelation. Yeah, I really enjoyed it as a new form of celebrity content. It felt, and again, I guess we sound incredibly old because it's not like YouTube makeup tutorials are (laughs) new, but it's a lot fresher than a sit down interview on a talk show or even, you know, some podcasts. It, it opened up the avenue for different questions. It was a lot chummier and I, and, and friendlier. And even though I, I, the, the kind of one half of the face doing makeup, one, not sort of at some point started reminding me of the, uh, the Aaron Eckhart character two face in <laughs> sure that uh dark knight which yeah. is just like a very upsetting hour of that movie that has nothing to do with Nikki's skills or Adele's skills or either of their beauty like they all look great it was just like the construct of one half of the face of the other i started getting a little nervous but otherwise it, it just it's interesting to compare that with something like the new yorker jeremy strong profile and i'm like oh i understand why you did this instead um it also it was cool to me because Adele's makeup has been fantastic for 15 years. Mm-hmm. So it was really cool to embrace something that she actually doesn't talk about very often, but is a huge part of like her public persona, which is like the contouring on her face. So I just thought it was really savvy and just quite pleasant. And I was like, Nikki tutorial, who is this? And then I was like, Oh, she's the one who hosted the live stream for the Met Gala. Mm-hmm. And we were like, who is this? <laughs> so <laughs> what do we know? She's, I learned a lot. She's Dutch and she's, she um, seems great. Yes. So I just liked it as I, I think also after Adele's rollout, which I think we have to admit has been like pretty masterful, but you were concerned we were losing Immaculate. some of the like relatability and kind of like old school Adele. And this did feel like just chatting with Adele again, which is totally. one of her superpowers. So uh, congratulations to everyone involved. I couldn't have been more wrong. I love the album and she's been doing a great job with her press. So I'm, I love to see it. Love to be wrong. And that's so nice. That's what yeah. a lovely positive note to end on that. It's just <laughs> that something that you've been anticipating and put a lot of emotion in like panned out. That's so great. It really is. On that note, Erica Cervantes, thank you for producing this episode and we will be back next week. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.